this evening, we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, the subject being the unity of the Spirit, which occupies verses 3 to 6. And it is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of Scripture together, so that if those who are sharing with us in this meeting, by using the recording, if they care to switch off for a moment or two, and read Ephesians chapter 4 with us, we'll be able then to go through the meeting together. We are dealing in this new set of meetings with the second part of this great epistle to the Ephesians, practically the, the work that um, follows the doctrine, the free gift of salvation emerging in good works according to the teaching of chapter 2. Now last time we looked together, we were together, we observed the importance of the word worthy that comes in the first verse. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And uh, we have before us uh, just the illustration of a pair of balances. Uh, the doctrine being put in one scale, the practice put in the other. Well now we have before us this chart, and those who are receiving this recording will also have a photograph of this chart in front of them. Let me ask you to observe the way in which the perfect balance of doctrine and practice is observed in the outline of this epistle. You see, uh, under the word worthy, we have the opening section on this side, all spiritual blessings. And on the other side, spiritual armour, which is given for those who have no conflict with flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness. There's a perfect balance there, you see. And then we have Paul's prayer to the saints. And at the end, the wonderful condescension of that great man of God, although even the thought so, he says, and you pray for this. In the first prayer, he prays that they may know. And in the second prayer, he says, you pray that I may make know. So the more they pray for him, the more they can help themselves, which of course is truth all the time. And then we have the mighty power that was wrought in Christ that he raised from the dead. And in chapter 6, our version says, having done all to sang, because they didn't know what to do with the words, but it's actually having worked out all the same, perfectly in balance. So it shows you that this idea that we've pursued for so many years of discovering a structure is not a little being upon it. It helps to realize why certain words are used. They fit their place exactly. Then we have the new creation and its walk in chapter 2. Uh, that um, new, uh, that walk which God has foreordained and those good works that we should walk in there. Doesn't tell you what it is, and it says this But when we come to the practice, we have the new creation and its walk demonstrated and um, given in detail. Then we have the new man. And there were once aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel, that's their dispensational position. Now we have in the practice putting on the new man, and those who are not exalted once were alienated from the might of God through the ignorance of him. So we have alienation from two points of view. Then we have the temple with its stones, living stones, fitly framed together, balanced by the body with its um, 
joints, kidney, join together. Perfect harmony. And ultimately, we have a threefold unity stressed in the doctrinal side, where we are raised together, and seated together, and quickened together within, and we have a sevenfold unity which is to occupy our attention in this meeting, and possibly another. Well, that demonstrates, doesn't it, that there's no haphazard throwing together of teaching and saying, oh, just for a moment I'll tell you this, and then off on the Sunday else. Whether the Apostle was ever conscious that what he was writing was so marvelously balanced, we do not know, possibly not. Uh, but that is, of course, because we're dealing not with the opinions of a man like Paul, and yet his opinions were worth listening to, but we're dealing with an earthen vessel who was inspired by God to give us a revelation. That is a revelation as much of him as it is to us who now, years afterwards, read what it has to say. Well now, we noticed, didn't we, that the first, the first thing that's emphasized is not head knowledge, or a mere clarity of doctrine, or ability to speak and take public meetings, but with all loneliness, with all humility of mind, and meekness and long-suffering for bearing one another in love. It prepares you for the idea that in the practical realm, well, there'll be a good deal of this necessary. This emphasis upon love expressing itself in this loneliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearance. And it's a good thing that we keep it well in front of us. Because until traveling days are done, there'll be many things that will work, and many things that will rub us up the wrong way, and many opportunities to let the old man have a sort of say in affairs, you know as well as I do, even inside the chapel of the open book, we can sometimes feel there's a little irritation, and that's because we're still in the flesh and we're still here. So we're warm. Well now, we come to the first great thing which is we're called upon to do in relation to the walk that is worthy. And it's one of those things that you, you would not think of at the first. You would think, possibly, if we're going to be worthy of this wonderful truth, we must be out running campaigns, we must be conducting meetings, we must be writing books, and all that sort of thing. Well, that's right. Nobody, um, nobody could be blamed if they did feel laid upon their heart to run a campaign and make the truth known. And I can't talk about making books, can I? And so there it is. But that isn't what's in here. It says, first and foremost, you've got something to guard. You've got something to watch. You've been entrusted with something. And if that's going to be sorted or pitched or any measure altered, the rest of the witness is spoiled. So you see, it's up to us to be very, very sure what has been entrusted to us and why. You will notice that I've likened it, I don't know whether you can see on the chart in the middle, to the candlestick that was in the tabernacle. Most of us slip into the description and say the seven-branch candlestick, but there isn't anything possible. You can have six-branch candlestick with one in the middle, and that's the truth, because this unity of the Spirit has got on the one side of it faith, and the other side of it hope, on one side of it baptism, and the other side of the one Spirit, on one side of it, one body, on one side of it, one God and Father, but in the centre, and linking all together, is the one Lord, and without Him, there'd be no unity. <coughs> I feel that the subject is so great, and it is so necessary, if you and I are going to guard this, that we should know what we are guarding, that we, we should not be able to cover all the ground this evening. 
I believe that the subject of the one baptism is a subject that needs a bit more ventilation than we can crowd in, say, five minutes of our study this evening. So there's a possibility we should have to give an evening to it, to sort it out and see what we've got to keep. Have we got to allow within the limits of the churches of history, sprinkling little babies, baptizing by immersion adult believers, or did that get onto a dispensation that is past and is there something that we can discover that belongs to us? It's a question we should ask and a question we should seek an answer. And if we ought to know why Christ is spoken of in the future of this, this uh, unity, not as the one, not as the one saviour, he is, there's no other saviour, not as the one foundation, he is, there's no other, not as the one head, he is, there's no other, but he's called the one more. Now there's a reason for that, and I think a very essential reason. So that I'm forecasting that for the next two Thursday evenings, I rather feel that our subject will be, what is the one baptism? And then following that, why is Christ called the one Lord? Well then if we've got the others more or less raised in their relationship, we may feel we can intelligently stand for, and this end it means to the unity of the Spirit, and keep it in the glory, to the glory of God, and he puts it in the bond of peace. The first thing that I think we, we uh, might know is that among the many things which characterise the citizens of the Ephesians is that there are a number of unique things about it. Nowhere else do we read of all spiritual blessings. Nowhere else do we read of being blessed in heavenly places. Nowhere else do we ever read about being chosen before the foundation of the world. Nowhere else do we find anyone who is accepted in the beloved. So we go on adding unique things that occur only in that that place. Nowhere else in the old range of the New Testament is anyone ever said to be seated together where Christ is at the right hand of God. That's unique enough. And then we come down to this uh, particular use of the word here, the word unity. And we think, oh, well, that's a word that doesn't belong to this company any more than any other. And yet it's a fact that in a whole range of scripture, the word translated unity occurs in chapter 4, verse 3, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it comes again in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and it never comes again anywhere else in the whole range of scripture. So here's something which is not common or garden. This is something that's unique. Something which is a prize, something which is valuable. We are entrusted with a unique unity. So let's discover if we can a little bit more closely what it is. And we are told that its title is The Unity of the Spirit. Now I don't think when the Lord dictated this to the Apostle that he knew that some of the oil might have done, that of the tendency of the part of so many of God's people who have realised the truth of the mystery, to keep on talking about body truths. I said to one, not that sounds as though it's a sort of a mortuary you're going to. Body truth, body truth, body truth. Oh, it's good to realise we belong to one body. Uh, but, should we let James, who knew not a word about the mystery, should we let James give us a little word of guidance? He says, the body without the spirit is dead, being alone. This is not the unity of the body. This is the unity of the spirit. And because the unity of the spirit has made a part of it, one body that comes in its place. 
But we mustn't put the one body. As though it governs all. It's a part. The first thing for us to remember is to recognize that God has called it the unity of the spirit. And I think it's also a legitimate inference to say that this unity of the spirit cannot be, as it were, mingled with unities and organizations and societies and denominations, call them what you will. This is something which is not made by man. This is something which has been made by God and given to us, complete in itself. And we must remember that that being the case, we must neither take away nor add to that which God has entrusted to us. It's perfect. The number seven is not accidental. There are seven items in this unity. Let's read it, shall we? Our version says there is one body, as though it's starting off something else. Uh, but I think if you read the words there is after in italics, endeavouring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What is this unity? One body and one spirit. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and even all. It's possible that a translation which has been suggested is a good one, that he is above all, and through all, and in all things to you. God is not acknowledged, God the Father is not yet acknowledged by all universally. Just as we, we find a limitation, a pathetic limitation in chapter 1, verse 22, and have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things. Now is that true? No, not yet. Gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body. That's true. An anticipation of the fact that he will one day, one day be over all things universally. You see, we've got to be careful that we don't take that which belongs to the mystery and the dispensation of the grace of God and hand it out to everyone at the moment. It isn't so. It's an elective thing. It's a selective thing. So the Lord at the right hand is over all things to the church which is his body. One day he will be over all things without limitation. And God is the Father of all and over all things to that company who are included in this unity. You will notice too, though I've already drawn attention, uh, that the um, unity can be expressed in the figure of the lampstand in the tabernacle. And I, I want just to make this little note, because I remember being lectured by somebody that I supposed to teach that the epistle to the Ephesians reveals something so new that it's not to be found in the Old Testament, then I'm going to say that the unity of the Spirit, which is a seven-branch candlestick that was in the tabernacle, and I didn't say that. I said you could liken it in its construction to the seven-branch or the six-branch lampstand in the tabernacle. You see, we've got to be careful. We may use illustration. They're legitimate. But it doesn't necessarily mean that because we borrow an illustration of the tabernacle that Moses was told to build, therefore it upsets all the teaching that the church was never embedded in the Old Testament at all. You don't need that, but you know, some people are a bit uh, fussy, so we have to watch our steps. It's good for us that we've got these folks listening to every word we speak. Uh, when we look at the unity itself, 
It starts, as you see, with this reference to the one body. Let's give that an attention, shall we, first of all. We find in the, in the first chapter, we've already alluded to it, that he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. That is the chapter title of the calling that we've received. We belong to the church which is his body, of which Christ is the head. And you will notice in chapter 2 that we have a little distinction drawn between one body and God and one spirit and the Father. Verse 16. That he might reconcile the both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enemy thereby. Verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Reconciled unto God, access unto the Father. Reconciled to God in one body, access to the Father in one spirit. It looks as though we ought to watch these terms and not intermingle them. And then you have in chapter 4, verse 16, from whom, that is from Christ the head, the, the whole body, fitly joined together. Now that is an emphasis on the word unity, using another expression. The body, if it's to function, the body, if it is to be true, must be fitly joined together. That's the reason why the stress is at the beginning on keeping the unity. If there is no unity, then there's no functioning. And when we are looking at this section as a whole, we'll find that there are, there's an emphasis upon a threefold unity. Won't do us any harm to see it twice over with it. We have the unity of the Spirit in verse 3. We have the unity of the faith in verse 13. And by implication, we have the unity of every member of the body in verse 16. If you say, well, there's no unity, no word unity there, well, the word isn't there, but the reality is there. Sickly joined together and compacted. That sounds pretty much as though it's a unity, doesn't it? And dealing with the body, it is very essential that there should be this unity of part with part and all related to Christ as the head. As we said, we'll reserve reference to the central section, the one Lord, because it's important enough to give it a whole evening, I feel sure. And we notice that we have on the other side, um, uh, the, the third item is called the one hope of your calling. Where hope is mentioned in this epistle, it is related either to the extraordinary character of the hope or related to a calling. Uh, will you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12? that he should be the, to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now that word trusted is the same as the word hope. And hope and trust, of course, are linked together, but it disguises it a bit if you had in chapter 118, the hope of his calling, and chapter 112, trust. And instead of this referring to the idea that you first trusted in Christ before somebody else, it rather looks to the idea that you are in a state of prior hope, not merely in time, but in dignity. Nobody could quarrel with that testimony, that those who entertain the hope of this calling, they have a prior hope indeed, but it is, is, is said to be far above all principality and power and might and so on. 
Then we have the, uh, the word hope in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Now this is a part of a prayer. Now the apostle cannot be accused of never saying anything about the hope of the church during the Acts of the Apostles. He speaks about the hope very definitely in 1 Corinthians. He speaks about the hope very specifically in the Thessalonians. He ends up his last epistle to the Romans with a definite statement concerning the hope that they were doing to pain. And now he seems to say, now you, you want spiritual wisdom, you want your eyes open, and I'm going to pray for you that you may know what is the hope of his calling. It suggests that it's something new, doesn't it? Well, of course, he said, I want you to walk worthy of his calling. That's something new. And he is telling us that as sure as a calling changes, it's hopeful change. What is hope after all? In the scriptural sense, he has two relationships more than any other, con- uh, any other way of uh, uh, linking it. It will either be the hope will either be the fulfilment of a promise that God has made. Now you remember in Acts 36, the Apostle says that our twelve tribes instantly serving God, day and night hope to come, the hope of the promise made unto our God. If God has made a promise, you're expecting him to fulfill it. That's hope. Then the other way in which it is used is a course. The hope of the court. You tell me your calling then I'll tell you your hope, so far as I know the teachings of Scripture. But, we must remember that the Apostle has said here, one hope, one hope of your calling. You cannot be on to this company and then be expecting the hope of some other company without introducing confusion. And that's it, that's what happened. You see, God's people became so inadequate of the teachings of 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and so on. But it came with a dreadful shock. To even have it suggested to them, well, that was the hope of that people then, when the hope of Israel was still the strand upon which everything was strung. You get the very last chapter in the Acts of the Apostles, long after 1 Thessalonians 4 was written. He says, for the hope of Israel, I'm bound to this chain. Now, where does Israel come in the church of the one body? Where does Israel come in the dispensation of the mystery? They don't. What is their relationship to the dispensation of the mystery? Their relation is this, that they have been dismissed, and they have gone out into blindness, and they are now called by God, no army, not my people. When you cannot possibly have a part of the unity of the Spirit that we've got to safeguard, the hope of the people that have gone. That doesn't make sense. So he says it's one hope of your calling. You notice when he's going through, he doesn't say anything about the one body, just says it. He doesn't say anything about the one spirit, just says it. But when it comes to the hope, he expands it and says, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. As though he would ask you to watch that, for that may be a piece that you would slip over. And when we're looking at verse 3, you want to remember that it's not, not that he says, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, but in the bond of the peace. Now, we don't want to overdo this uh, use of the article, but it's there. And 
When you say the bond of the beast, the mind immediately says, what beast? You're referring to something specific, aren't you? Yes, the Apostle. So would you go back to chapter 2 and find quite a number of the items of the unity of the Spirit already embedded in that chapter? Verse 15. Oh, verse 14. For he is our peace who has made the boats one. Is making the boats one a unity? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Making the boats one. And have broken down the little wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the all commandments contained in ordinances, for to create in himself of the twain one new man, so making peace. Surely that's the peace that binds this unity together. Not merely peace and quietness that we may enjoy, but a peace that has been made. Here's the peace that has been made. The conflicting parties in the early church have gone. The little wall of partition which divided them is gone. The ordinances which separated them are gone. And in their place, we have this unity of the city. And we must never allow any of these things to be true. For if we do, the peace will be immediately impacted. So there's a peace. Now let's see if we've got anything else. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile both, the both, unto God in one body. Well, there's the one body of the unity of the Spirit. And then we have, in verse 18, one Spirit, to whom they have access. And then we have, in verse 18, one Father. So although we haven't got the whole of the unity of the Spirit, we've got some of the elements of it, enough to help us to see that we have to go searching everywhere to discover where this one body was made and what this one spirit is and what the unity of the of the bond of peace refers to. It's already a part of the finished work of Christ and uh, laid upon our house as a sort of obligation to keep. The uh, passage to which we refer when we speak particularly of the hope associated with this calling is Colossians 3, and although it's so well known, we may think it's not worthwhile including yet for the sake of completeness, let us read the first four verses of Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That is to be the bent, that is to be the object of our thoughts, and where our heart is, our treasure is, or I'm not sure which way it goes, or I'm going to look that message up. Or where our treasure is, there our heart is, we come to the same thing at the end. It seems to be extraordinary, if my hope is to be upon the earth, that God says, set your whole bit of being on things above where Christ is. As though he's saying, that's where your treasure is. I only say that because I've received by post today um, the magazine from our brother Mr. Sellers, who I've spoken to you about in Los Angeles, where he says the earth and not the heavens is the dwelling place of all God's people, including those who come under the heaven of Ephesians. Well, you see, these Ephesians and Colossians were going to set their heart on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God, and then when their hope is realized, they're going to be down here after all. Well, that seems to me getting perilously near a hope that makes you ashamed. Well, we'll read that. We'll see some more about that presently. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? For ye are dead or ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
I can't think of a safer place for you. You imagine, friends, that we have been given life, whether this could be denominated eternal life, immortal life, it doesn't matter. It's life in the fullest possible sense. And we haven't got it yet. No, no. It's ours, but it's in our safe deposit. Someone up Chancery Lane there's a place called a safe deposit, but think of this. Your life is hidden with Christ, in God. I don't think there could be anything could be put to that to make it more secure than you. Now then, what's going to happen then? When Christ, who is our life, shall be made manifest, you see, it means with Christ, in God. So when he's made manifest, we shall be manifest with him in the glory, where he sits at the right hand. So it'll take a lot of it to make some of us come to the conclusion that although we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, when we enjoy them, we're all going to be down here. It does not seem to run on all points. Well, that is one of the passages which speak about the hope before the people who constitute this new and wonderful calling. This is balanced on the other side by the one faith. One hope, one faith. We have one spirit, one baptism. You know, putting it like, like that is almost answers the question, doesn't it? What baptism is it? Well, it's opposite the word one spirit. But we'll leave that because I think it'll speak for itself next time. One faith. Now the word faith, of course, can mean my belief, my trust in Christ personally. But it is often used as the faith. All that we believe, in a sense, I hardly like to use the word creed, because that's degenerated, but all that we believe is called the faith. Let's see just an expression of Galatians chapter 1 that they illustrate this. Speaking about himself, he says at the last verse of Galatians 1, But they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. What he was out to destroy the Christians, he was out to destroy all belief in the risen, uh, crucified Saviour. The whole collection of articles of truth are called the faith. And so we have in chapter 4, Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. This faith is something which has been entrusted to us. And I think there's a passage that might be turned to in the epistle of Judaism, although he is on very different ground, where there is something uh, comparable to the call that we're receiving here. Just for a moment, the epistle of Jude. He says, verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So that it doesn't belong exclusively to the church of the present dispensation to be on its side to the faith that's been entrusted. But because Jews told those believers to contend earnestly for the faith entrusted to them, that doesn't mean to say that that's all one of the same as that which has been entrusted to us. Although there is a common command to guard it, the things to be guarded may be different. And then we have, in the, at the conclusion, one God and Father of all, 
If you search the Old Testament, you will find that there are one or two references to God. He says, like as a father, pity his children, so the Lord pity them that fear him. But it's a far cry from saying, like as a father, to declaring he is a father. I remember years ago when I was facing this, uh, I did say much to some things. I said, you know, if I said to my old dad, you know, you'd be like a father to me, I should have to look out a bit and step back. Let me tell my father that he'd be like a father. That's not, that's not sense, is it? You'll find that God likens himself about twice in the Old Testament to a father. But he's never revealed as God and father until the advent of Christ the Son. And now, the great title in the New Testament, and particularly in these epistles, is God and Father. Now the great names of God are mighty and wonderful. They know him. But the word God that meets us in the first verse of Genesis. The God who keeps covenant. The creator. And then Jehovah. The God who redeems and brings the purpose through to the end. And El Shammai. God Almighty. Think of those terms. And if you forget others. But there's something wonderful about the fact that this God, this great God, this God of majesty and wonder, calls himself our Father. But surely he means what he says. He calls us his children or his sons. And all through the New Testament Gospels as well as Epistles, our thoughts are directed to the fact that when we pray we say our Father. And here the Apostle in this uh, Ephesians 3, he says, verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. And he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is important. And you will discover that he's spoken of as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that impeaches upon our subject what they're dealing with the one Lord. But I would anticipate it was worth perhaps repeating that so many times when we are quoting scriptures, we half quote them. We quote half a verse. And I would say to you, as I say to myself and say to myself many times, do not argue with a Bible shut. When you're dealing with subjects and you're teaching the people, have the Bible open. Because so many times, a word in the context, a word in the next verse is waiting for you, and with your Bible shut, you're going on the same old rut that you went last week and the week before, and you never see anymore. So, I say, what's all this leading up to? Well, when the prophet said that the people of Israel, they should be no army, not my people, that isn't all that God said. And there are some people who wouldn't know what God said after that, because they never opened the book. He said, you shall not be my people, and I will not be your God. He that's not a tragedy, what is. That God should say to a chosen people that he had given them a priceless inheritance, he became their God, he said a time will come when you will not be mine and I will not be yours. So you see, when we say that at Acts 38, the people of Israel were dismissed into their present 1900 years of blindness, it's not enough to say they became not God's people and stopped there. They took the name of God with them. Now, all the way through the Old Testament, God is spoken of as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. 
the Roman Empire. That's the way they continue to refer to it. Even in the New Testament, where Jesus speaks, he speaks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Well, don't you remember a father that he didn't want to go out and say, She heard the people around about him saying he was the son of David. So, what could she do? She went up to him and said, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. He answered not a word. And when she pressed and changed term, she said, Lord, he then told her that at that time his ministry was limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it was very important that you use the right title. Well, what about ourselves? If we were persisting knowing the God in prayer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I hope say God won't hear us. But we should be wrong, and we may be frustrating something. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the moment has been set aside, even as the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been set aside. And when they're taken back, he says, You will be my people, and I will be your God. Have I come back with that? Well, where do I come in then as a poor outside lost gender? Will you look at verse, at chapter 1, verse 17? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if a person is arguing about the deity of Christ, he says, oh, that's fruity, that's all finished. He cannot possibly have the deity of Christ and then he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. But supposing we're barking up the wrong tree. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the man. If we so argue about the deity of Christ that we forget his man, we've still got no saviour. It's the man Christ Jesus that's the mediator. The mediator. Oh, I see. Yes. Well, I cannot go to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But I can go to God as the God of my mediator. That's all right, Greg. I may have lost something by not being able to say all oh, thou God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But I've gained him infinitely more. If Christ steps in where Abraham, Isaac and Jacob once were, have I lost anything? No. So that unless those words have been written that he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I ought consistently say, well, can I go to him at all? What right have I got? He's taken away his title. He tells me I'm an alien, I'm an outcast, I'm a stranger. How can I approach him at all? Well, he says you can. He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if he says, he says in chapter 3, verse 14, he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we've got the two, they're separated. In the one case, he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the next case, he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then they're both brought together in other places, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's rather interesting too to notice in chapter 6, verse 23 and 24, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now the point that I want to make is this, that over and over again when Paul introduces his epistle, his opening salutation is grace, mercy and peace from the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That comes over and over again. But if you look at the end of the epistles, the way in which he brings his epistle to a conclusion, the epistle to the Ephesians is the only one that has the Father at the beginning and the Father at the end. It's the one epistle that is marked by a benediction at both ends. 
And both of them stress the word Father. Well, you say, what are you going to make of that? I'm not making it. You're not going to make it. telling you. That's how God has arranged it. That this title of His should be stressed. And it's a part of the unity of the Spirit that we're to keep. And it's expanding. He's the Father of all. He's above all. And He's through all. And He's in all. And as we said, there's one rendering, and in all things. Not in you all, but in all things to you. You can make it which way your life becomes much to the same at the end. And you will remember in other places we have this relationship. The Apostle says that so far as others are concerned, you might look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 5 and 6. He's speaking about idolatry that was very strong at that time. He says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 5, and though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods men and lords men. See, the gods are one, and the lords are another, and the lords are the mediator. You must go back into all these of the times of, of when this was written, and you must remember that when a great man like say Julius Caesar died, he was great in the sense that he was a conqueror, and he was a bit of a wretch, I think, in most of his ways that he was a child of his times, when Julius Caesar died, he was transferred to a sort of middle heaven, and he, he was made a mediator. He was made a demon. We use the word demon in a very wrong sense. You may know that St. Augustine in his treatise, he's got three chapters, I think, or two at least, in arguing the question, does the church today need demons? Well, you say, whatever the matter with Augustine? What he's arguing, do they need mediators? Because the demons were halfway between men and God. So he says, all around us we have God's name and Lord's name. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. But this must be missing out of its context. Otherwise, You'll have God the Father, out of whom everything comes, but nothing goes back to him and by him. And you'll have the Lord Jesus Christ, who originates nothing, but all things are for him and by him. You will get stranded properly if you're not careful. And so we have this insistence that in this unity, we have the body, we have the Lord, and we have the Father, and then on the other side, the faith and the hope, the baptism and the spirit. In uh, chapter 3, 15, you'll see one reason why the word Father is of importance and should be kept well in front. Not only does it say in verse 14, For this cause are thou my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, But of whom the whole family, or possibly better, every family, in heaven and earth is made. Now our word English word family comes from the word fabulous, which means a servant. In the olden days, the fabulous was the uh, equivalent to the nanny that we read about in some of the sentimental novels, you know, the young 
Saint Grace, he goes all around the world, I don't know what speed he doesn't get up to, and then when he's broken, penniless, he comes back to his old home, and there's his old nanny, oh, she's 85 or something, she puts her arms around him and brings him back again, and then he remembers the days of his youth, when this old nanny was more to him than mother and father and so on. Well, there's an element of truth in that. And our English word, family, is named not after father or mother, but the old, trusty, heavenly servant. There's a fine thought in that. But that's not here. We mustn't read that into this passage. This word, family, is the word that is derived from the word father. It's the word petia that comes into this word. This is, some, this is a group of people, or a group of uh, beings, that have a common father. The word father is being stressed. So you see. It looks as though whatever calling it may be, however distinct it may be from one another, as long as you belong to the family of God. For now God spoke about the children of Israel. Children. He called them sons. They were his first born sons. So although he didn't redeem himself by the word father, there was this family. And then we have the every family in heaven and earth, wherever they may be. They're all named by the common fatherhood of God. And so we have the word father waiting for us right to the very time of the end, when the goal of the ages is reached. We have this statement. Verse 38, verse 15, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 38. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him. Now up to now, we've had the word Father. Verse 34, where he should have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father. Now the Son is to be subjected, and the word Father is not repeated. The Son also himself should be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. We've gone right back to the beginning. God. Not necessarily God the Father, or God the Son, or God Elohim, or God Jehovah, but just God. The purpose of the ages is at last reached its goal, that God shall be all in all. And the mediation is finished. Priesthood will have been done, finished. Temples will be abolished. The Son will step from the mediator's throne back to his rightful place in the Godhead. The Father also will never be deposed. But he himself is not named. It's all swallowed up in the one great covering word, God shall be all in all. Well now, these things have got to be considered a bit more carefully, and they will come under the word, the one Lord, which is emphasizing Christ's position in this unity. And the other passage, which I say we must give attention to, will be the relationship of baptism to this present calling. So for the time being, Shall we just call a halt and be thankful that we belong to this company? But because we are thankful and because we by grace have had our eyes open to see this precious calling, because we can, without affectation, speak about ourselves as men of the body of Christ, that does not release us surely from responsibility. So dealing with the practical side as we are this evening, we realize that the first call upon our time and our energy 
and all that we possess is something will not be spectacular. Some of our friends will say, well, what do you do with yourself? What are you doing in Christian work? What are you supposed to do? Of course, that will always be the thing we've got to remember. And we mustn't allow that to jolt us out of our position. The first thing we are called upon to do, the word endeavour, is a word that could be literally translated, make it your business. You see, in the other end of the story, the apostle uses the same word, when he says, study to show thyself approved under God. So your study is directed to being approved of God. And the study here, or the endeavour, or your business, is first of all, to keep, and as I think we've already realised, that about six different words translated keep. You can keep a commandment, you can keep sheep, you can keep a prisoner safeguarded in prison, or you can keep a trust that's been entrusted to you. That's this one. We are to keep a, as a sacred trust the unity of the spirit in the bond of that thing which Christ himself has made and which has been partly explained in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 when of the train he created one new man so making peace. Let us leave it there then and meanwhile let us pray for one another that we as members of this body may be fitly joined together and to listen to the exhortation which follows this in Philippians assuming we belong to a unity that we stand fast striving together for the faith of the gospel.